A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show, and thank you so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Ah, they're not bad people, as you'll soon find out. Just people willing to question the narrative, willing to think clearly and independently during times of crisis, willing to see the world as it is, and to use their their uh, influence as wisely as they possibly can to uh, help shape the world around them. Glad you could be a part of our audience. Our program is brought to you by HSLAmmo.com, also pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Got a lot of great stuff to cover today, so let's dive right in. I got to tell you, I have the deepest respect for people who can take complicated topics and distill them down to the basic principles at stake. In other words, people who can take things that uh, that others are paid very well to keep complicated in order to keep as many people as possible in the dark, you know, to, to make sure that, well, you know, you have to turn to me if you want answers for this. By the way, government is probably the best at this of, of any institution that I know of, but yeah, it happens. Still, I love the people who can look at a very complicated situation and say, okay, think of it this way, and it makes sense. It's not that they're dumbing it down, it's just that they're putting it into terms that more of us can easily understand, because let's face it, I need all the help I can get. Well, Donald Boudreaux writing for the American Institute for Economic Research, has a marvelous analogy of how the modern economy works. And I know, you probably have it. You probably discuss this around the dinner table with family and friends all the time. Oh, yes, well, we were just talking about marginal utility. You know, it's a wonderful thing. No, he has a, a terrific analogy. And I want to share this with you. It's an article titled, If I Could Paint. But listen to what he's describing here. He says, if I possessed even modest talent at painting. I'd paint a picture to convey some sense of the modern economy's inconceivable complexity, dynamism, and vastness. He says, as I imagine it, my picture would give the viewer the impression of looking at the ocean or the surface of the ocean at eye level, which uh, that which is above the surface would be visible to anyone. But that which is below the surface would be invisible to all but the privileged viewer of the picture. So above the surface teems a cornucopia of goods and services, goods and services, the existence of which is made possible only by what is beneath the surface. Now the goods and services above the surface, available in abundance for ordinary people to consume, are all connected in intricate ways to the materials, machines, efforts, and processes, financial and real, that are taking place beneath the surface. And although the quantity of goods and services above the surface is immense, its size is minuscule compared to the colossal amount of economic inputs and activities going on beneath the surface. surface. Inputs and activities including creative entrepreneurship and risk-taking and on-the-spot problem-solving, connected in in an unfathomable number of uh, combinations to each other and also to the goods and services above the surface. He says this web of connections is so complex as to be inconceivable to the human mind. 
Donald Boudreau writes, the human eye can very easily see that which in reality is, so to speak, above the economy's surface. In plain sight are the huge amounts of food, drink, and other household goods that are always available in every supermarket throughout the modern world. The automobiles whizzing along, boulevards and autobahns, the seemingly endless menu of choices at retailers such as Amazon and Walmart, the army of oncologists, cardiologists, neurologists, podiatrists, obstetricians, pediatricians, gastroenterologists, pediatric gastroenterologists, and other medical specialists, the blogs, books, movies, streaming music, movies on demand, guided tours, and sports league television networks to entertain or challenge your mind, the jetliners that carry you away for holidays or from or home from job assignments, the high and rising life expectancy, the infants not dying or their mothers, the parents not grieving, the artificially cooled indoor air during the summer and artificially heated indoor air during the winter, the new app for smartphones, smartphones, goods and services galore, from the gaudy to the glorious in each and every one of them, the fruit of this inconceivably complex and spontaneously ordered web of economic relationships and processes, a mix of peaceful cooperation and competition that works so silently and so invisibly that almost no one knows of its existence. Now, I want to pause for just a minute and and just ask you to get your mind around this. And by the way, there's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Please check it out because you might even want to reread that paragraph a time or two just to get a glimpse of the vast number of things that are taking place out of sight and for most of us out of mind in order for us to go about our busy lives and to be productive and enjoy all the creature comforts that we've become accustomed to. Now, Donald Boudreau says, in contrast, the human eye cannot see the full extent of the productive processes that make this cornucopia a reality. Indeed, this massive below-the-surface market activity is easy to deny or trivialize. And it's therefore tempting for those who are unhappy with what they see on the surface to demand that the surface phenomena be rearranged to be more pleasing to the unhappy complainer's eyes. But he says these unhappy complainers don't realize that to knowingly meddle with that which is on the surface is to unknowingly meddle with far more. It's to unknowingly yank on an uncountably large number of cords by which the surface phenomena are connected to the Everest of market processes beneath the surface. Meddling with the surface phenomena causes many of these unseen cords to pull, twist, and rearrange in unpredictable ways many beneath the surface economic arrangements and processes. Among the simplest examples of such unseen pulling, twisting, and rearranging would say involve raising tariffs on imported steel in order to protect the jobs of today's steel workers or to better ensure supplies of a critical military input. Seems simple. And indeed, it's likely that such tariffs work, at least for a time, to ensure that more steel is produced domestically and hence to protect some steelworker jobs that would otherwise be made redundant by imports. But he says, look beneath the surface. The higher tariffs on steel artificially raise the cost to other domestic producers of supplying the likes of precision tools or automobiles or home appliances and office buildings. These producers of goods made with metal react with some combination of reduced outputs, lowered quality, greater use of aluminum, or other substitutes for steel. And then buyers pay a higher price for these goods, thus generally leaving them less to spend to buy other goods and services like health care and restaurant meals, nights out at movie theaters, vacations to Disney World. 
See, employment in these other industries falls, thus offsetting any tariff-engendered gains in the employment of steelworkers. There's that which is seen. There's that which is not seen. Which, by the way, is an excellent essay from Frederick Bastiat, author of The Law. Donald Boudreaux says the unseen consequences continue, so as more aluminum is used domestically to produce, say, home appliances, the price of aluminum rises. The cost of supplying some military hardware thus also rises, both because of the higher prices of steel and because of the higher prices of aluminum. The defense budget grows, causing either taxes to rise today or, through debt issuance today, taxes to rise tomorrow. The need to pay these higher taxes reduces consumer spending and business investment in ways unforeseeable, thus causing contractions in the size of some industries. And as these industries contract, they employ fewer and fewer workers and fewer in, they buy fewer inputs from suppliers. Yet because the consequences of tariffs play out over large numbers of economic relationships in space and time, no one can trace their details. He says, we know chiefly through economic theory that these consequences are real and generally worse than what would prevail absent any tariffs. But out of sight, out of mind. If the surface economic phenomena can be manhandled in ways that give it a better appearance to those who mistake the surface for the entire economy, well, then that's that. The manhandling of surface phenomena is mistakenly thought to work. And so you hear the protectionist boasting, see, the steel tariffs ensure we produce more steel. And the economist is left to verbally insist, quite correctly, that this visible success comes at too hefty a price paid in the form of invisible distortions now infecting the vast subsurface web of market processes. Now, Donald Boudreaux says, Oh, I wish. How I wish that I had artistic talent enough to paint such a picture. How I wish that I could make more visible, literally visible to the eye, the economy's teeming, streaming, pulsing, gargantuan, yet almost completely invisible and silent interconnectedness and complexity. He says the person who paints such a picture would provide a great service to mankind. Okay, well, he's painted the picture mentally. And that's something worth considering right there. But the bottom line is, all these things that you and I take for granted are things that uh, others, you know, particularly people in power, seem prone to meddle with and to play with and to tweak and to mess around with thinking that, well, it's only going to have the desired effect that I want. That's the measure of good economists. That's a measure of good thinkers. They don't just look at what's seen. They try to consider what is unseen and how it might have unintended consequences. Good stuff. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you haven't taken the time to do it yet, could I please ask this small favor? Go to my website. It's very simple, thebrianhydeshow.com. Brian is spelled with a Y. Hyde is spelled with a Y. And please subscribe to this podcast. It's a simple click. You just go to the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com down at the bottom. You've got a subscribe link. There's also another link there, and I would ask you to just hesitate for one moment. Think about if if what you hear and what you gain, what you have uh, reading-wise through, through this program, if the content that I'm putting out there is providing some value or some insight for you, 
I would ask you to help me do what I do. And, and by that, I mean help me stay focused on what I'm doing rather than thinking about, okay, do I need to go grab a part-time job at the gas station in order to, uh, to keep doing what I'm doing? $5 a month, $10 a month, a buck a month. You can become a patron. You can become a supporter, a monthly subscriber. It's very simple. And I thank you in advance if, if you consider becoming one of my, my growing number of supporters. So exercising your free speech should be simple enough, right? Just say what's on your mind, and if somebody doesn't like it, well, too bad. Free speech, <laughs> bucko. Unfortunately, in our highly litigious society, defamation lawsuits are becoming a common tool to silence people who speak things that um, people in power don't really want to be spoken. In fact, it's become a common tactic of government employees who are using what we call lawfare, the legal system, weaponized against people who publicly complain against them. Got a great article here from Ryan McMacken explaining how defamation lawsuits are used to stifle free speech. And I have to admit, this is kind of chilling. He says the average American can be forgiven for assuming that he or she can freely criticize the government and government personnel without fear of being sued by the government for libel or slander. Now, this is indeed true most of the time, but it doesn't mean that government agents with hurt feelings won't sometimes try suing private citizens who have the temerity to criticize how government bureaucrats do their jobs. In fact, this was the case earlier this spring when a Louisville Metro police officer named Corey Evans filed a lawsuit against the DUI guy. That's an attorney named Larry Foreman who has a YouTube channel, and he sued him for defamation after Foreman accused Evans of planting evidence. This is from Louisville's WDRB reporting, Foreman posted body camera footage to his YouTube channel from a 2018 incident where... The Louisville Metro PD officer, Corey Evans, searched a man's vehicle following a suspected DUI. Now, the video depicts Officer Evans and another unidentified officer searching the vehicle for alcohol. Evans looks in the center console without finding anything, but the video jumps forward to the view of the other officer who opens the console and finds a bottle of liquor minutes later. Now, Ryan McMacken says, look, I don't quite agree with, uh, I don't, While I don't agree with Foreman when he concludes the video speaks for itself, he does say Foreman's conclusion is nonetheless quite plausible. In other words, the body cam footage makes it easy to see how Foreman could sincerely believe that Officer Evans did indeed plant the evidence. That is, Foreman may have simply been stating what he believed to be the truth. Now Evans' attorney claims the accusation has hurt the reputation of the LMPD officer and the suit is seeking damages. Ryan McMacken says, let's hope that Evans loses and loses big. See, the problem of a police officer suing a community member for an accusation of abuse helps illustrate one of the central problems with defamation lawsuits. They can be used by powerful people to silence critics. Now, in the United States, we're fortunate that it's quite difficult to win a defamation lawsuit. Generally speaking, in American courts, plaintiffs claiming damages from defamation must prove actual harm as well as intent to harm. And the plaintiff must also prove the defamatory comments are false. So the difficulty of winning a defamation lawsuit under such circumstances helps discourage countless defamation lawsuits, and thank goodness. Alas, in other parts of the world, that's not the case. Ryan McMacken says we find many cases of government agents suing or even prosecuting citizens for defamation. We even find wealthy and powerful private citizens suing critics. 
even when those critics are apparently stating what they believe to be facts. So the potential for abusing defamation law helps illustrate yet again the wisdom of deferring to freedom of speech as a dominating legal principle and as a philosophy behind the U.S. government's First Amendment. The presumption should be overwhelmingly in favor of the freedom to speak freely. As efforts to limit speech in the name of protecting reputations presents many opportunities for the abuse of government power. In all times and places, of course, agents of the regime prefer to silence their critics if they think they can get away with it. Historically, regimes have employed many strategies such as blasphemy laws or they simply outlawed criticism. But as The Economist has reported, quote, all these approaches attract international criticism. So some governments turn instead to defamation laws. Defamation is recognized almost everywhere as grounds for a civil claim in which subjects of wanton and damaging falsehoods can demand financial compensation. But when defamation is a criminal offense, governments can go beyond fining critics who've caused demonstrable harm and imprison them simply for speaking. Though several countries have recently decriminalized defamation, many more still prosecute it zealously. And even where it can no longer lead to jail, charges can stifle criticism if courts award vast damages. End quote. Now, Ryan McMacken says, Fortunately, in the U.S., where defamation suits are generally difficult, it is especially difficult for government personnel or government agencies to sue for defamation. And this has been true for many decades, and this tendency towards skepticism of government-initiated suits was greatly strengthened in the American courts back in 1964 with the Sullivan ruling in which the U.S. Supreme Court concluded, quote, For good reason, no court of last resort in this country has ever held or even suggested that prosecutions for libel on government have any place in the American system of jurisprudence. End quote. Now, in the U.K., on the other hand, protections against defamation suits have been far weaker, even in regard to suits by government agencies. Only in recent decades, for example, has the U.K. turned heavily and explicitly toward restricting government suits against critics. And invoking the government's courts to cover damages can be used in the private sector to silence one's opponents as well. So in the U.K., where defamation laws are far more extensive than in the U.S., we can find the cases of defamation suits used to gain commercial and political advantage. So, for example, when a plastic surgeon expressed doubts over the efficacy of a breast enhancement cream, the cream's manufacturers threatened the surgeon with legal action. In another case, Saudi businessman Khalid bin Mahfouz sued a researcher who publicly concluded that Mahfouz had given money to al-Qaeda. Now, these kind of lawsuits would be quickly dismissed in the U.S., but in the U.K., Matters are different. As NPR has reported, quote, crooks and brigands from around the world come to the UK to launder their reputations, where they couldn't get exculpation in either their home country or indeed in the United States of America. That's according to Mark Stevens, a London lawyer who often represents media companies in these cases. In American courts, the burden of proof rests with the person who brings a claim of libel. In British courts, the author or journalist has the burden of proof and typically loses. So you've got the rich and powerful shutting down and chilling speech, which is critical of them, says Stevens. End quote. Now, of course, the fact that it's very hard to win defamation lawsuits in the U.S. doesn't mean that no one ever threatens them. Even Donald Trump was notorious for threatening defamation suits against critics. That dates well back before his years as an elected official or even a presidential candidate. 
Trump even sued one of his own Trump University students in 2010 over that student's criticism of the school's business practices. So Ryan McMacken concludes, look, thanks to the U.S.'s laissez-faire attitude toward defamation, these cases were dismissed relatively quickly, although not without first causing his victims many sleepless nights and legal fees. He says one can only hope that the lawsuit brought by Corey Evans against the Louisville Metropolitan Police Department receives the contempt it deserves from the courts. After all, government agents and agencies already exercise far more power over their fellow citizens than is the case for average people. The last thing we need is for these agents of the regime to be able to threaten their critics with lawsuits for the act of merely saying things. Police officers and other government employees who don't like being subject to public criticism can always resign their positions and become ordinary private tax-paying citizens. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. That's where you'll find links to each of the various articles and authors and guests that I have on the program. I don't know if this will surprise you or not, but uh, when I got into talk radio, one of the things that got me into the talk game, if you will, was uh, I, I, it was 1994, and there was, a, there was a so-called assault weapons ban that was being proposed at the federal level. And uh, I know this is going to shock some people, but I did not come down on the side of gun control. In fact, I was, I was amazed and dismayed and, in fact, angered at the amount of uh, disingenuous reporting, manipulation of facts, and just outright lies that were told on the part of much of the mass media in order to justify a ban on so-called assault weapons that, you know, would protect the American people. And California was the state that let out. If you remember, there was a Stockton schoolyard shooting. I believe the guy's name was Patrick Purdy, who uh, killed five or six kids, all of them little uh, little Asian children who had, had Im- their families had immigrated to the U.S., from uh, I don't know if it was Thailand or Laos or Cambodia, but it was it was a pretty heinous crime, and it was it was used to justify something that politicians had wanted to do for a while. We've got a ban on assault weapons because he he used a legally purchased copy of an AK forty seven to carry out his crime. Definitely a tragedy, but still the idea of you know one guy pooped his pants, therefore everyone must wear diapers. It just doesn't follow. I'm sorry. It's it's an injustice to try to approach things from that uh, that angle. So California has been one of the harshest practitioners and enactors of gun control among all the states. And it's funny too because they 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 oh, oh, you gun owners you don't have to worry about this if you have this gun you're fine you know it's not like we're going to try and take it from you and then you fast forward a few years okay well we are going to make you register this. And now we are telling you, now that we know that you have it, you need to turn it in or get it out of state. Yeah, everything they said they wouldn't do, they did. Which, you know, there's a good lesson in that if you're paying attention. But now, a federal judge, after 32 years, has just overturned California's so-called assault weapons ban. The judge is actually calling the policy a failed experiment that violates the individual right to keep and bear arms. 
And it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. I, you know, I don't hold out hope that, well, if just enough judges would do this, you know, we could, we could uh, get this country back on track. But this is a pretty bold move. And California, I mean, the Governor Newsom right now is just freaking out. He calls it a direct threat to the public safety and the lives of innocent Californians. Now, interestingly enough, of course, uh, if, if these really were so dangerous, these weapons of war, they have only one purpose, and that is killing innocent people. If that's the case, it's, it'd be curious to know, why does California carve out exemptions for, say, its police officers, its law enforcement agencies, to have not only, you know, so-called assault weapons, but like legit assault rifles with select fire, meaning they could be fired fully automatic. Yeah. One set of rules for thee and another for me uh, that's uh, that's a good sign you're dealing with tyranny at some level. But U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez issued a permanent injunction against enforcement of the law. He has stayed it for 30 days. But uh, the next couple of weeks could be pretty interesting. This is an article from the South China Morning Post, and sometimes it's good to go outside of the U.S. to get a little more objective view on this. In other words, a little more nuanced view. Something about uh, American mass media is, uh, how can I put this nicely? Very slanted. Yeah, <laughs> that'll work. There's a certain narrative that, that American media sources prefer, and by gosh, you do not stray from that narrative. But other places, you know, in South China Morning Post, I think gives a fairly even-handed treatment of this story. They report a federal judge has overturned California's three-decade-old ban on assault weapons, calling it a failed experiment that violates people's constitutional right to bear arms. U.S. District Judge Roger Benitez of San Diego ruled last Friday the state's definition of illegal military-style rifles unlawfully deprives law-abiding Californians of weapons commonly allowed in most other states and by the Supreme Court. Benitez said under no level of heightened scrutiny can the law survive. And he issued a permanent injunction against enforcement of the law, but stated for 30 days to give Attorney General Bob Bonta time to appeal. California Governor Gavin Newsom condemned the decision, calling it a direct threat to public safety and the lives of innocent Californians, period. Which translated means, oh my gosh, the people could have the same kinds of firearms that our police have or that that, uh, they, they could actually have parity of force with whatever I'm able to muster? Yeah, that's what scares him. The people don't uh, don't have those neutered, uh, you know, pea shooters that uh, the king would prefer they have, but instead are carrying the same kind of modern muskets that the king's troops are carrying. Gee, I wonder if there's a, if there's a precedent for this. I wonder if there were, were some kind of uh, I don't know constitutional amendment, for instance, that could explain why such a thing would be necessary. You know, to the security of a free state. Huh. Okay, sarcasm off. In his 94-page ruling, the judge spoke favorably of modern weapons, saying they were overwhelmingly used for legal reasons. And by the way, he's right. The number of people who die in any given year from rifle fire of any kind, and I'm talking people who are, are you know either justifiably killed or unjustifiably murdered by rifles, including so-called assault rifles, still is less than the number of people who die because of other people's fists or feet. 
Yeah, it's it's a solution looking for a problem. And the solution is we need power and we need a monopoly on force and we need to find a way to keep the citizenry from having parity of force. The judge said in his ruling's introduction, like the Swiss Army knife, a popular the popular AR-15 rifle is a perfect combination of home defense weapon and homeland defense weapon, or homeland defense equipment, equipment rather, good for home and battle. Now, that comparison completely undermines the credibility of this decision and is a slap in the face to families who's lost loved ones to this weapon, says Gavin Newsom, as if the AR-15 just on its own jumps in the car, drives out, and starts shooting people. Newsom said, we're not backing down from this fight. We'll continue pushing for what he calls common sense gun laws that will save lives. Bonta called the ruling flawed and said it will be appealed. California first restricted assault weapons in 1989 with multiple updates to the law since. Assault weapons, as defined by the law, are more dangerous than other weapons. Now, keep in mind the qualifier, as defined by the law, not in reality. And the law says, or lawmakers claim they are disproportionately used in crimes, mass shootings, and against law enforcement with more resulting casualties. That's according to the state's attorney general's office. Barring them furthers the state's important public safety interests. Remember we talked yesterday about how uh, for the for the public safety or the public health? Okay, this is one of those things where we're going to throw a nebulous phrase out there and assure you that whatever's going on is okay because we're doing this in the interest of the public. This is in the interest of the people in power. And I'm going to be really blunt here for a minute, so, you know, brace yourself. This This may rub some people the wrong way. Why do people like Governor Newsom, why do California's Attorney General and others in power fear the idea of an AR-15 in the hands of a law-abiding citizen? And by that I mean a peaceful, a peaceful, rather productive member of society. They fear that because their policies and their desires to rule the people, to dictate to them, you will do this, you will do that, are threatened by the possibility of them pushing the people into a corner far enough that the people say, enough. And they put their foot down, and when that happens, what does the state have at its disposal to force its will, to make sure that the people do dang well what they're told? Yeah, they're going to send men with guns and badges to enforce it. If the people can negate that force or create parity of force and resist with the best tools for the job, and by the way, the AR-15 is a great tool for preserving freedom, for preserving innocent life against lethal aggression, whether it is by an average criminal or by someone wearing a state-issued costume. That's what politicians fear. Even more than that, they fear the idea that if, if they push the people hard enough, if they try to lock it down and be tyrannical enough, the people may eventually reach the point where they have no choice but to remove that elected official, from office. And these elected officials are terrified that one day they're going to face one of these things as they are marching their way towards a a noose because they were doing things that, uh, you know, Nikolai Ceausescu and his wife were doing. That's an ugly thing to consider. And I don't mention it lightly. It's certainly not a first resort. But firearms like the AR-15 in the hands of the people 
as a last resort against government tyranny, you better believe they are a viable check on government power. Otherwise, Gavin Newsom wouldn't be quaking in his shorts. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I admit, you know, that last segment, ooh, that ended on kind of a, kind of a stark note. But I got to tell you, this is one of those issues that uh, if you want to talk about the line in the sand, people wonder, well, you know, what was it that pushed the uh, the, the colonies to, to not just say, hey, we're going to declare our independence and go our own way, not just to, to throw tea in the harbor, not just to tar and feather the king's tax collectors when they got a little too heavy handed, but to actually stand up and say, no, we will fight. As happened on the morning of April 19th, 1775 at Concord and Lexington. Come on, you know the answer here. The king and his generals sent troops to confiscate the arms, the, the ammo and the muskets from the colonials. They were trying to disarm the people. And when that happened, the people realized, look, if we allow this to take place, we are going to be utterly reduced to servitude. We're going to be utterly, utterly reduced to despotism. And so they did what uh, what needed to be done, and it's it's sad, it's tragic, it's unfortunate, but it was necessary. They shot those redcoats, and fought them. Nobody wants to think anything like that would ever be possible in our day, and I I certainly don't look at the possibility of something like that happening and think, oh, that would be that'd be great. I'm not one of those guys who thinks, yeah, it's a good thing to water the tree of liberty, as Jefferson explained with the blood of tyrants and patriots. But I believe that having the ability to stop that uh, unlawful, as opposed to just legal, government force is a necessity. And I know the Biden administration right now is working very hard to create registration and confiscation schemes. You're going to see more and more calls for, we've got to disarm the American people. We've got to do it. It's just, it just no more talk. It just has to be done. My friend, that is the line in the sand. That is, uh, that is a line that uh, once someone in government is foolish enough to cross it, they're going to reopen a can of worms that uh, was uh, last opened back in April of 1775. And it's going to be ugly. Wouldn't we be wise to understand this and for them to back off while they have a chance to back off rather than push this to where violent conflict is the only way out. Nobody I know is is eager for, for violence. But neither are we eager to be reduced to essentially slaves with government having an absolute and unchallengeable monopoly on force. By the way, if you're going to say, well, Brian, they've got uh, stealth bombers, they've got atom bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell me about that and how, how we use that to win in uh, Iraq and how we use that to win in Afghanistan, how we use that to win in uh, Vietnam and various other places. Go ahead, tell me all about it. What? Oh, those, those countries are still uh, doing their own thing? And, 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 and the, the, what was an occupation either is ending or has ended? Yeah. You don't own a country. You don't control a country. 
until you absolutely control every inch of that land. And there just aren't enough troops, there aren't enough police to go out there and to stand and hold that land against a civilian population that's capable of negating that kind of force on an individual level. Sorry, this is this is this is dark stuff. I don't even like to I don't like to talk about it, but I, I, I speak it because I believe it is the truth and I think it's something that we need to have clear in our heads. There's a time when it's okay to fight back. And I don't know how close or how far we are from, from that, but I know people are pushing us towards a situation where that is going to be the kind of decision placed on us. That's something you probably want to have uh, sorted out ahead of time. It stems not from a desire to dominate either, and I hope that's clear. When I shared Paul Rosenberg's uh, commentaries about you know the um, Judeo-Christian principles, it was absolutely justifiable for God's people to stand up and throw off their oppressors. But they weren't to go out and to dominate and to conquer for the sake of having dominion over other people. They were just to secure their freedom. Speaking of which, I have an article here from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research, The Ancient Desire for Freedom. This is a really useful read in that it walks you through historically how this isn't just, you know, I mean, some people, you know, politicians especially would like to portray it as well. You know, freedom's just a passing fad and it's a selfish thing. And, you know, there are plenty of would-be rulers who want us to believe that. But that ancient desire for freedom among humankind has been around for a long time. And the, the efforts of the people who came before us have given us very solid ground to stand on if we understand it. Ethan Yang says, we live in an age when we are the beneficiaries of thousands of years' worth of scholarly thought on the value of a free and open society. In the year 2021, we have the privilege of living in a world where we can now show empirically that a free society outperforms all other systems that have been tried. Nobody can deny that a government that protects private property, free exchange, and basic civil liberties is one that can facilitate the most prosperity for most people. There's a powerful correlation between protecting protecting economic freedom and economic growth. And the safest form of government is a limited government with checks and balances through an enforced constitution, co-equal branches of power, and dispersed decision-making rights. In particular, Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in 2009 for outlining the superiority of a polycentric style of government with dispersed and competing centers of power. But he says it's also become fashionable, especially with the critical theorists of the Marxist and intersectional Marxist persuasion, to paint the institutions of liberty as recent innovations to preserve racism and power. Some respected historians, for example, would argue that the ideas put forth by the great 20th century American economist and political scientist James Buchanan were just a conspiracy to preserve racism. Critical race theorists in the legal profession would argue that important institutions like the Constitution and the free speech it protects are mostly in place to uphold racial hierarchy. Now, he says, although there's no doubt that bad actors have done bad things in the name of liberty to advance such wretched goals, to suggest that the institutions of liberty, such as free markets or limited government, exist primarily for such ends, would be historically ignorant. Ethan Yang says, the desire for freedom and the importance of the institutions that enable human flourishing in a free society Go back as far as history can recount. 
And this is where he takes us on a little bit of a journey through history from Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia rather, to 21st century America. It's a, it's a very well thought out timeline of how our understanding of freedom and the principles and practices of freedom have developed. In fact, he has a quote here from ancient Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu, who articulated a refutation of authoritarian government years ago. One of his famous lines was, the more laws and restrictions there are, the poorer people become. The more rules and regulations, the more robbers and thieves. And Ethan Yang says, thousands of years before the tenure of any mainstream economist or legal theorist, people like Lao Tzu were already hinting that systems that enable a free society may be the most optimal forms of government. So the key takeaway from this article is, today there is certainly a dangerous revisionist campaign led by liberty skeptics attempting to paint the institutions of freedom as just recent innovations to entrench systems of hierarchy and racism. However, the ideas of a free society are ones that truly date back to antiquity, although they're only seeing widespread implementation in the modern era. He says it goes without saying that their application is what led to modernity in the first place. From the ancient epic of Gilgamesh to the cutting-edge work of today's scholars, liberty has shown itself to always be unfinished business. Every generation has stories of struggle and wisdom to share on the maintenance of a free and open society, humanity's greatest innovation. I'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Again, this is from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research. Allow me to explain why this has relevance to you and me. That line he has in there about how the, the liberty has shown itself to always be unfinished business. Most of us, and I'm including myself in this, have pretty much been able to coast for the better part of our lives on the liberty that was purchased by those who came before us. Whether you go back to the American Revolution, you uh, look through American history, World War II, people have done heavy lifting along the way because liberty does not perpetuate itself. It is only found among people who understand its principles and practices and who live up to those principles and practices. And frankly, throughout human history, there haven't been that many people capable of keeping it, even if they were able to achieve it. But somebody has to do the heavy lifting in order to pass that torch along to the next generation. And I don't mean to to sound intimidating when I say this, but for you and me, it's our turn to start lifting. And this is something that each of us needs to be a part of. I suspect you already are. You wouldn't likely be listening to this broadcast. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey there, welcome to the show. Thanks for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I would invite you to check out the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Show notes for today, June 9th, 2021. 
You'll also find links to our great sponsors, including HSLAmmo.com, Pure-Light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. So I want to start out with a, with a question for you about uh, how the U.S. government's doing a lot of stuff around the world in your name and my name. But uh, I, I'm curious, does any of that really pertain to us? Now, for some people, especially like if you have family members who are serving in the armed forces, you might be now, Brian, that's very disrespectful to ask whether or not, you know, these brave men and women are out there, you know, serving us and whether they're, they're representing the American people and defending us abroad. And, and I get that. And I, I mean, no disrespect. I think people who've joined the military have probably done so in good faith that they're not going to be sent on a fool's errand or they're going to be used, you know, for, as pawns in some larger game. However... I still have to ask all the stuff that's being done, the drone strikes, the, you know, building of military bases everywhere and anywhere. How does that really serve the cause of liberty? And, and I'll, I'll back that up by asking this. The more military bases that uh, the U.S. has built abroad, the more adventures that it has sent members of our armed forces out to pursue, are we more free or less free? Just go back 20 years, okay? We'll just take it back to before the war on terror began. Are we more free or less free today as a result of all of those um, examples of foreign policy? All of those interventions? I mean, I know how I would answer this, and I, I don't lay that at the feet of why it's the military's fault. It's the policymakers. And it's just curious. I mean, we, we tell ourselves, you know, during the seventh inning stretch, we tell ourselves during the national anthem or the flyby over the stadium, oh my gosh, that's the sound of freedom. But is it really? Pat Buchanan has a great column that asks a question any citizen worth his or her salt should be willing to ask of our elected representatives, and that is, what is America's cause in this world? Because truth be told, our nation's foreign policy really doesn't seem to reflect much of anything that pertains to the American citizenry or the voting public. Pat Buchanan starts with a quote, or a comment rather, that's attributed to Winston Churchill, take away this pudding, it has no theme. This is what he said when a disappointing dessert was put in front of him. Writers have used Churchill's remark to describe a foreign policy that lacks coherence or centrality of purpose. He says, for most of our lifetimes, this hasn't been true of the United States. The goal of our foreign policy, once, he says, was understandable and defined. From 1949 to 1989, it was Cold War containment of the Soviet Union and USSR. Ronald Reagan believed in a rollback of communism, once telling an aide that his policy might be summed up as, we win, they lose. At the Cold War's end, George H.W. Bush said America would now lead uh, mankind in the creation of a, quote, new world order. George W. Bush was going to deny, us, deny to all access of evil nations like North Korea, Iran, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, access to the world's worst weapons, with our ultimate goal being ending tyranny in our world. Well, according to Biden Democrats of today, America's goal is the preservation of a rules-based international order which is less inspiring than Remember the Alamo or Remember Pearl Harbor. So what are the causes that actually animate Americans? A March survey of 2,000 registered voters done by the Center for American Progress reveals that most Republicans share the foreign policy priorities of Donald J. Trump. When asked to identify their first three foreign policy priorities from a list of a dozen, 
Two-thirds of Republicans, 65%, gave as their principal concern reducing illegal immigration. And 57% of these Republicans put protecting jobs for American workers right behind it. Independents agreed these should be the top twin goals of U.S. foreign policy. So what does this tell us? Economic nationalism is alive and well in the GOP, and securing the border remains a central concern of America's center-right. In third position, at 31% among Republicans, was taking on China's economic and military aggression. Only 9% of Republicans listed fighting global poverty and promoting human rights as top foreign policy priorities. Last among GOP priorities at 7% was, quote, promoting democratic rights and freedoms abroad. In fact, that was the least popular foreign policy among all of them. Conclusion, Pat Buchanan says the priorities of the Bush presidencies and the neocons, democracy crusades, free trade, the new world order, open borders, have failed to recapture the constituencies they lost in the Trump years. While combating global climate change rests near the bottom of Republican concerns at 10%, it's the number one priority of Democrats, with 44% listing it first. When it comes to ending U.S. involvement in wars in the Middle East, that goal ranks fifth among all voters. Democrats, Republicans, and Independents all support that objective. And since the latest uh, CAP survey in 2019, the greatest change is the reduced concern over terrorist threats from al-Qaeda and ISIS. You know, less than one in four voters now view this as a top uh, priority. As Matthew Petty writes in an analysis of the CAP survey, today Americans prioritize getting out of Middle East wars over confronting Middle East adversaries. The survey would thus seem to provide public support for the Trump-Biden withdrawal from Afghanistan and for Biden's efforts to re-engage with Iran and renew the 2015 nuclear deal. Also ranked high among Democrats and independents, but less so among Republicans, is improving relationships with allies. So what does the survey tell us? Well, Buchanan says illegal immigration and economic nationalism energize the GOP rank and file, but climate change does not. There's no enthusiasm in either party for new democracy crusades, and there seems to be no enthusiasm in either party for a clash with Iran, North Korea, Russia, or China. Only 14% of Democrats wish to address China's military and economic aggression, though 31% of Republicans do. But the overall impression here is one of democratic confusion. We Americans are all over the lot about what our foreign policy should be and what it should do. In fact, he says one's reminded of an insight from Walter Lippmann about U.S. foreign policy confusion before World War II. Quote, when a people is divided within itself about the conduct of foreign relations, it is unable to agree on the determination of its true interest. It is unable to prepare adequately for war or safeguard successfully its peace. Thus, its course in foreign affairs depends, in Hamilton's words, not on reflection and choice, but on accident and force. End quote. I'd say that pretty well sums up where we are. Pat Buchanan asks, should we energetically promote democracy worldwide because it's the right and moral thing to do, though the American people clearly do not see this as America's cause? Should we intervene to help Ukraine retrieve Crimea? Should we fight to prevent China from consolidating rocks, reefs, and islets of the East and South China Seas? Is preserving the independence of Taiwan, which we conceded half a century ago is part of China, worth a war with a nuclear-armed China. 
which leads to the question, what, should US, what role should U.S. public opinion play in the shaping of U.S. foreign policy? Now, I understand if, if my take on this sounds really cynical, but um, I don't think you and I have any influence whatsoever in the arena of foreign policy. I think the folks at the State Department out there at Foggy Bottom, they just they do what they feel is in the best interest of the U.S. government, the establishment, its allies, the non-elected players. Yes, I could invoke the deep state here, but let's let's keep it just with what's above the surface for the moment. None of that has anything to do with us. And just because we go out and we, we vote, well, I'm going to cast my vote, and my vote's going to be for we ought to go and fight Iran, or we need to fight China. That doesn't mean that your vote has any kind of influence in that regard. Most of these decisions are, are made totally out of our reach, totally out of our purview, and yet we are taxed, and I mean we are taxed in order to make it a reality. You know, there are things that our government is doing right now in the name of some, you know, conceived foreign policy, some perceived advantage that it's giving us, that I don't want my money going to, I don't want my name being attached to it as an American. Drone strikes on soccer games because, well, we think this person might be, you know, uh, allied with one of the people that we don't like, and so we got to wipe him out. Great, what about the innocent people who were sitting around who also got wiped out? Well, you know, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. Well, that's a, that's a pretty lofty point of view, considering it's not one of your loved ones lying there in pieces on the ground. I'm not a pacifist. I actually sometimes wish I could be, but I'm not. But I think more times than not, our government is the aggressor and the instigator of problems. I'd like to see that change. What would you like to see? This is The Brian Hyde Show. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one. One easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. This is good news, maybe exactly when you need it to. Right now, MediShare is waiving their new member fees. This could save you money on top of all that you'll save each month by becoming a member of MediShare. So many people are looking for a healthcare solution right now, seeing the cost of COBRA plans, for instance, and MediShare is the affordable alternative to health insurance. The typical family saves $500 a month. You might save even more. MediShare is a Christian community that shares each other's healthcare costs, and because of the current 
current economic situation, they're making it easier than ever. Apply by March 31st. You can save an additional $170 on your first month. I'll give you the number here in a second. And if you call, you can get a price within two minutes. Just tell them the promo code SHARE to receive your additional savings. Maybe now is the time to make the switch like more than 400,000 people already have and start saving. Here it is. Call 833-34-BIBLE. That's 833-34-BIBLE. 833-34-BIBLE. Tell me why Relief Factor is so successful in lowering or eliminating pain. I'm often asked that question. Pete and Seth Talbot, the father and son founders of Relief Factor, tell me they believe our bodies were designed to heal. The doctors who formulated Relief Factor selected the four best ingredients, 100% drug-free ingredients that each help your body deal with inflammation. Order the three-week quick start now. Discount it to only $19.95 to see if it will work for you too. Call 800-500-8384. ReliefFactor.com. What can help you take advantage of today's low mortgage rates and save money? Rocket can. You could save hundreds of dollars every month by refinancing with Rocket Mortgage at today's near historic low rates. If your current rate is over 4%, you could lower your payment by over $150 a month, saving thousands in interest every year. Call us today at 8338-ROCKET or go to rocketmortgage.com. Savings are based on quick and loans, internal data, points and fees may apply. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing letter. License in all 50 states and all consumer access. Number 3030. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. Okay, this is going to sound like kind of a weird question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you believe in the Freedom Ferry? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It sounds like a facetious question, but, you know, this accurately depicts how some people view casting their vote. And uh, I've got a great column here from Jeff Thomas. This was found on LewRockwell.com earlier today, which explains how this Freedom Ferry mindset is contributing to the decline of formerly great first world nations. He says, for some time it's been apparent that the former free world countries, the U.S., the European Union, Canada, Australia, Japan, etc., have been on a downward progression. And he means socially, politically, economically. But in the last 10 years, Jeff Thomas says, the awareness of this has become increasingly pronounced With each successive year, more and more people recognize that all facets of life in these formerly great countries are headed in a decidedly negative direction. So at this point, even those who don't understand the decline intellectually feel in their gut that this is not going to end well. Further, they feel it all around them, and they sense when the condition becomes critical, it won't just affect others. When it reaches the crisis stage, they're going to find it right on their own doorstep. And he says the average person in each of these jurisdictions already no longer trusts either the media, big business, or the government and feels that somehow they're all in this together and that they, the electorate, will be the ones who will be the ultimate victims. And so he asks, is this a question of collective imagination gone haywire? And he answers, not at all, I'm afraid. In fact, he says their instincts are quite correct. Governments and big business alike have sold out the populace, regarding them as mere fodder in their pursuit of increased power and wealth. Governments in the former free world have for decades become increasingly collectivist, promising ever greater largesse to the hoi polloi, and the majority of voters, sad to say, have eaten it right up. Yet as the electorate becomes more worried, he says they don't ask the government to go into reverse and stop 
the economically illogical largesse, in fact, quite the obvious. As their fears grow, they actually demand more largesse. And so Jeff Thomas says it shouldn't be surprising that as we get closer to the collapse of this house of cards, new candidates arrive on the scene, offering to take entitlements to never-never land, promising universal free health care, free education through university, and a guaranteed income without the need to earn it in any way. Now, of course, when this happens, those who understand that 2 plus 2 equals 4, not 8 or 12, recognize that any government that attempts to deliver on such promises will cause the collapse of the system. Not just the economic system, but also the societal and political systems. And so he says, those people who do understand that the numbers simply won't work, ask themselves, where is this all going to end? And the answer is typically they wring their hands, aware that their concern is the minority view, they recognize that they can no longer discuss their concerns freely as their country's moving in the opposite direction, embracing new, empty promises with ever more determination. So they search around for some form of hope, and in the majority of cases, whether they like to admit it to themselves or not, they fix their hopes on the Freedom Ferry. They vainly hope that somehow the average voter will wake up or that sitting politicians will come before the press to reverse the stance they've always maintained that big government will provide for all. But unfortunately, that's a vain hope, isn't it? Jeff Thomas says, deep in our hearts, we know that sitting politicians are not going to collectively say, whoops, we goofed. We're sending the country into ruin. We're going to downsize the government, introduce a free market system, and then resign and get out of the way. And he says, since that won't happen, well, then uh, the only hope is that a freedom ferry will come along. Someone who has never held public office before who says, you know what, I'm going to buck the system. If I'm elected, I'm just going to jolly well tell Congress that they're all, to, they, they all need to stop this uh, collectivist nonsense, stop borrowing money, and turn their backs on all the corrupt deals they've made over their political lives. Yet as obvious as it should be that no freedom fairy is going to come along, let alone succeed, with each successive election cycle, the more enlightened portion of the electorate starts to imagine, maybe this time it'll be different. Maybe this time we can turn this around. And he says, there in that last sentence is the key word to the futility of this wishful thinking. That's the word we. It seems to be human nature to imagine that if a group of us, maybe even a large group, believe that something is a good idea, somehow it will happen. Worse, he says the we suggests that the person in question actually believes that his vote has some sort of significance. As Mark Twain famously said, if voting made any difference, they wouldn't let us do it. Quite so. So in good times, the electorate gets to vote for the lesser of two evils. In the end, whichever one wins, the running of the country remains as previously planned. There may be changes in the style of the leader, but the same playbook is followed just as before. But in volatile times such as we now face, the electorate gets to vote for the lesser of two nightmares. And in the end, whichever one wins, the running of the country will remain as previously planned, but the electorate will be even more polarized than before, and the eventual outcome will be that much worse. And so, Jeff Thomas says, for the more advanced voter, the one who understands that the political, economic, and social system are spiraling downward, 
the most natural tendency seems to be to irrationally hope that the Freedom Ferry will come along, wave the magic wand, and send the country back to a time when most everyone worked for a living, took responsibility for themselves, paid their own way, and built a strong, productive society. Now, he says it's, it's rare indeed for anyone who finds himself in that situation to honestly say to himself, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. And that's the tragic truth. The former free, productive society has been whittled away, it no longer exists, and it's not coming back. So unfortunately, there is no Freedom Fairy, nor is there a Wizard of Oz any more than there's an Easter Bunny or a Santa Claus. When empires collapse, the worst thing a voter can do is vainly mark down on the ballot card the name of whoever he thinks the latest Freedom Fairy might be. Jeff Thomas says he should instead toss his ballot in the dustbin and leave the polling place in the knowledge that Mark Twain was absolutely correct. And what then? Well, Jeff says that's an even tougher question to deal with because at that point he must accept that A, if his country has reached its sell-by date, and B, it's going to take him down with it, his only hope is to bow out of the system that he realizes is on the verge of swallowing him up. So if he doesn't wish to become collateral damage, his only choice is to pursue the freedom he cherishes in a location where it still exists. Just as the more enlightened German Jews found in 1938. Just as the savvy Cuban business owners did in 1959. The last opportunity to pursue freedom is just before it ends where you presently reside. Now, I know for some people, that's why it is talking about uh, fleeing the country, leaving the country, going somewhere else. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what he's saying. And I realize for a lot of us, that's just not going to be an option. It's just not going to happen. Not only economically is it not feasible for a lot of people, but there are pretty significant barriers put in place to keep you from leaving, and especially keep you from leaving with your money. I mean, if you want to do a little bit of uh, peeking into what the IRS demands of people who are looking to transfer their wealth out of the country, let me just assure you that uh, Uncle Sam will not let you go unless you have uh, properly paid tribute to him and his own. So I'm not planning on fleeing. I'm going to stick it out here. I feel like uh, this is this is where my influence is likely to be needed, and so I'm going to do my best to, to use that influence wisely. But the concept of bowing out of the system as much as possible, reducing your governmental footprint, oh, I think there is great merit to that idea. And I'll confess, I spend pretty much every waking moment of every single day contemplating how I can further decrease my governmental footprint. And it brings peace of mind. Who'd have thought? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I want to I wanna go again to another dangerous place. I don't know what it is. Maybe... Maybe it's the fact I, I woke up this morning and I looked outside and uh, someone thoughtfully had smashed my windshield of my car in. No, I'm not kidding. It, 
<laughs> it's, I, I mean, it's, it's not like the window was, was totally smashed out of there, but it's like somebody walked over the car or sat on the windshield or something. It is definitely smashed in. And I'm just thinking, okay, well, that's not the kind of thing you expect to see when you, when you get up first thing in the morning. But um, if, if I seem to be a little bit off today, that might have something to do with it. But, uh, you know, it's certainly not the end of the world either. But nonetheless, I want to talk about hate crimes. Not that I believe I'm the victim of one, but is, is it just the season? It just seems like there's a surprising number of people who are very obsessed right now with what others might or might not be thinking. So I thought we could talk a little bit about hate crimes. And, and what sparked this, this desire to talk about this in part was, um, I guess, somewhere in, in Utah, some, some kids apparently took down a pride flag. Oh, you haven't seen them? You didn't know? Yeah, it's Pride Month. And um, apparently some kids, as, as a vandalism prank, took down a flag and burned it. Now, look, that's destruction of somebody else's property. And I'm not going to pretend that that's, uh, you know, that was just, you know, ha-ha, you know, harmful hijink or harmless hijinks. That's, that's a rude thing to do. They deprived somebody of their property, and, you know, they deserve to be held accountable for it. But, of course, that's not the narrative that most mainstream news outlets are going to approach it with. Why? This is being investigated as a possible hate crime. Oh, really? And it's because, you know, that, that hate crime means... Uh, th- th- here's, here's why. If the kids had stood around, if they'd taken that flag and filmed themselves waving it and chanting, you know, uh, pro-pride slogans, I'm sure they would have been just fine. Somebody might have scolded them, hey, put that back. But because they destroyed a symbol of pride that challenges the orthodoxy, oh my goodness, obviously they must hate all gay people and they just want to kill everyone. I don't think that's the case. And I don't understand why some people's inclination is to to immediately jump to why this is the worst thing ever to happen and the police need to get out. Where's the FBI? Get me Interpol! You know, it's like, wow. Clearly, based on what people might or might not be thinking, some crimes are much more serious than others. That's why I thought maybe it would be fun to, uh, to see what uh, Walter Block, who's a professor of economics at Loyola University in New Orleans, has to say about this. He asks the question, should we recognize hate crimes? By the way, those are in quotation marks. Hate crimes. On the seventh night of Chanukah last year, he writes, Grafton E. Thomas went on a stabbing spree at the home of Rabbi Kaim Rottenberg in Monsey, New York. He wounded five people, one of whom later died from his injuries. Now, the case seems pretty straightforward. If Mr. Thomas committed the crime, he should be found guilty of murder or assault and battery. But if he didn't, he shouldn't. But he says, but Walter Block says the government complicated the moral waters by also charging Thomas with a hate crime. And he points out that hate, of course, is an emotion. It takes place solely in the mind of the perpetrator. One can commit a crime with or without being hateful about it. I mean, before going about their business, mafia hitmen sometimes say something along the lines of, this isn't personal, it's just business. In other words, they harbor no personal animosity toward their victim. But should mafia hitmen be treated as lesser offenders than criminals who commit the exact same crime while acknowledging their hatred of the victim? Why should an extra penalty be imposed for entertaining bad thoughts while in the commission of a crime? 
from the viewpoint of the citizen in this example, the victim in this example, rather, the end result is the same. In both cases, he's dead. Now, Walter Block says, look, I don't mean to imply that motives are completely irrelevant. If you break someone's ribs while pushing him away from a speeding truck, you're innocent of any crime. On the other hand, if you commit the exact same act in order to hurt that other person, you're a criminal. But he says there's a world of difference between the two examples. Distinguishing between someone who intends to save his fellow's life and someone who wishes to harm his fellow is perfectly sensible. But it's not at all clear, though, that it makes sense to treat two murderers who committed the exact same heinous crime differently merely because one acted in cold blood while the other succumbed to bad thoughts. Indeed, he says, some might even argue that a person who murders coolly and rationally should receive a harsher punishment. After all, the assassin who plies his trade solely due to pecuniary considerations could have easily chosen to refrain. In contrast, the hateful murderer was in the grip of his passion and thus less able to desist. That's a good point. In short, he says, I believe it wise to strike hate crimes from the criminal code. That means that Grafton E. Thomas should be charged only for what he did and not what he thought. A person should only be punished for his deeds, not for his motivation. Now, I understand for some people this is like, well, no, but it's bad to hate. And and this brings us to something that Joseph Sobran used to write about called the, the bogus or unspecified predicate. See, when you get into the realm of people's uh, thoughts, you have to go into the abstract. Getting inside a person's head, well, Your Honor, we know because the person said this, this is what he was thinking. No, you know what he was saying assuming that you have witnesses who heard it or maybe a video or audio recording of what they were saying, but you don't know what they were thinking. That's a dangerous place to send government. Well, let's see if we can figure out what what this person was thinking as they did this act. What they are thinking is irrelevant. The act is the only way by which we can objectively measure was harm caused or not. Now, this flies in the face of, of course, political correctness, cultural Marxism, intersectionality, critical race theory, where society is automatically divided up under these thought systems into a system of oppressors and the oppressed. Victims, in this case, gain power over not just their oppressor, but over everybody by virtue of, well, certain things are illegal for you to even think or to hold in your heart. And I shouldn't have to explain how utterly totalitarian that kind of thinking is. Someone wants to control what you think. Someone wants to punish you for holding opinions that differ from their, their own. And so my question is, well, what, if, what if their opinions, different from yours, are nonetheless uh, the pro, you know held by a person whose behavior is is peaceful see i'm i'm of the opinion a person can hold unpopular thoughts because that's a very subjective call and it may change according to who is in power and who isn't at the given moment but as long as their behavior is peaceful that's their business well brian is still wrong to hate okay tell me what hate means. Give me a concise legal definition that can be equally applied, because this is what fairness and justice and, you know, due process requires. 
What's the standard that can be applied equally to all under the law? See, this is where people start to... How do you define hate? I mean, we all know it's bad, right? Well, that person's guilty of hate. But what have they actually done? See, I can measure their behavior. I can look at that behavior and say, okay, so this guy smashed my windshield. Means I got to call the police. I got to call the insurance company. Probably going to see a little bump in my premium. Yeah, I'm not happy about it. But at least in this case, and I don't like to say these words, but there's a victim in this case. Someone has suffered a loss. The person who smashed my windshield, whether it was a kid walking over the car or whether it was a person who just thought, huh, I don't like Volkswagens and, you know, decided to smash it for whatever reason. Or maybe it's a person who says, Hyde, I'm on to you. (laughs) I'm going to show you what I think of you and your claptrap. What they were thinking matters not the least to me. I'm not concerned with whether or not they're a hater or not. My only concern is, okay, here's the damage done. Um, If there's someone who can be held accountable for it, great. In this case, this is a fairly easy injury to move on from. may cost me a couple hundred bucks, but okay. It's the idea that somehow if we just get government involved in enough of these laws, and if we can just add on these penalties for the exact same act, you know, someone who does something accidentally or someone who does something haphazardly and causes harm versus someone who's shouting angry epithets as they're doing it. The harm is the same. What they think isn't really that big of a deal. And unfortunately, under the laws of political correctness... An accusation of hate is as good as a conviction because the, the person accusing isn't burdened with the, the difficulty of proof what you've just said. They just scurry back under their rock and wait for the cancel culture mob to come and do its work. I'll have a link to Walter Block's article in the show notes. Check him out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. As a follower of Christ, you are created and called for greatness, now more than ever before. In his powerful sequel to the bestseller, Kingdom Man, Tony Evans' Kingdom Men Rising calls men to break free of apathetic faith, to take a stand, do more than just exist. You have been called to rise up and influence those around you. Discover how when you get Kingdom Men Rising and learn the art of intentional impact. New from Tony Evans, sponsored by The Urban Alternative. With a Democratic sweep officially in place, we are now at the mercy of tax and spend economics. Get ready for runaway national debt pushing the further devaluation of the dollar. So if you haven't invested in gold, now is the time to protect your savings. Birch Gold Group is the premier precious metals IRA company in America. With an A-plus BBB rating and thousands of satisfied customers, Birch Gold can help you move an eligible IRA or 401k into an IRA backed by gold. Go to birchgold.com radio for your free information kit. That's birchgold.com radio. 
Hi, this is Brian Hyde. Several months ago, I was introduced to a small Idaho technology company called Pure Light that's invented a new type of light bulb that's simply amazing. Their LED light bulbs make all other light bulbs obsolete. And I've actually had a chance to put them to work in my own home. Now, these are bulbs that eliminate odors, including pet odors and chemical smells. They eliminate mold. They eliminate deadly germs, even the tough-to-kill ones like MRSA or E. coli or salmonella. They eliminate smells. They eliminate deadly chemicals from the air, just like a $1,000-plus air purification machine would do, only for a whole lot less with these Pure Light LED bulbs. And you know what? They work as advertised, and they're already being used in thousands of homes, businesses, schools, assisted living facilities, medical facilities, government buildings, and more. Find out for yourself. Go to pure-light.com. That's pure-light.com, the next generation of light bulb. The following are real-life stories from Trinity Debt Management. My story begins with debt, a lot of debt. I used my credit cards as a source of income. It was not a good situation. I couldn't pay my bills. The interest on the cards was really high. If you're in debt and you need help, call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. I initially was scared to call, and immediately I felt relieved. They contacted all of our creditors, and they put us on a plan for success. Trinity will consolidate your accounts into one. One easy-to-manage monthly payment, reduce your interest, and possibly improve your credit score. You'll save thousands. I've been able to pay off close to $15,000. We're doing a lot better. Please pick up the phone and see how affordable and easy it is to pay off your debt. It's a godsend. We're debt-free for keeps. Call Trinity at 1-800-990-6976. That's 1-800-990-6976. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back, my fellow wrong thinker. I want to talk a little bit about face masks. I, I'm very relieved to see that face masks are finally starting to go out of fashion, at least for some. But boy, there are some folks who are just hanging on to it for all they're worth. I saw a video yesterday, and um, look, I'm not a great swimmer. Okay, I'm a mediocre swimmer at best. Thankfully, my wife's a lifeguard. A couple of my boys are lifeguards. All of my kids have been in swim team. Yeah. I'm just, uh, I'm, I'm just, uh, I'm like a buoy. <laughs> Stick a light on me and, and uh, let my body fat float me around, and I'm pretty much going to be good. But I saw a guy swimming in a pool with a face mask, and he swims and swims under the water, and he comes up and pulls his mask down and... <gasps> Puts the mask back on and back he goes swimming. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it really is a cult. I, I, I'm just, I'm trying to imagine what, what's the justification? What kind of thinking goes into that sort of an approach? I mean, that's the equivalent of waterboarding yourself. I don't know. Maybe he was trying to get something, you know, confess. Where did you put the remote? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's a good way to find it out. Well, as encouraging as it is to see the face masks starting to go the way of the dinosaur, I've got a great article here from Alan Stevo that uh, continues to offer some of the best advice on how to work around those businesses who've chosen to hang on to mask mandates for their customers. And his latest essay lays out why it's bad to mention the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, to justify your decision not to wear a face mask. 
Alan Stevo says, look, you're a human. You don't need a law in order to exist. You don't need a law in order for you to pre- to want to have preferences. And you uh, want to be treated according to those preferences in line with a common standard of decency. You don't need a law in order to have boundaries that you will not cross. So to invoke such laws is akin to paying honor to those laws and recognizing them as legitimate. They have so many illegitimate applications. But he says, be very careful with decrying them legitimate. It just takes a vote from a crooked legislature to do away with them. Moral codes of decency, on the other hand, well, they're not up for determination by legislature, executive, or judiciary. So here's what he's recommending. When you go to a store and they say, ah, you're going to have to put on a mask unless you can show me proof of your vaccination, have a human-to-human conversation. Don't just cite, you know, well, under the ADA, I don't have to do what you say. He says, so many are used to resorting to force and escalation with people like, let me speak to your manager, or I'm going to sue you if you don't, whatever. Speaking to managers can be good, he says. Suing people can be good, too. But if you prematurely resort to threats to get your way, that's not good. And the prevalence of this behavior across the political spectrum is merely a symptom of the moral decay that socialism has wrought, particularly among conservatives and libertarians. I mean, you'd think they were Communist Party supporters the way they threatened bringing matters to state for resolution literally within 45 seconds of an uncomfortable problem arising. So Alan Stevo is saying don't escalate prematurely. Handle things calmly with the lowest level person who's able to address the concern. And if you need to escalate, then escalate. But he says when the state gets involved, there will almost always be two losers in the process. Almost no one walks away from an interaction with the judicial system 100% whole. That's because invoking laws prematurely is the same bad socialist route. And he says it also means uh, that uh, invoking laws like HIPAA or ADA around uh, medical privacy. These are great laws to have in your back pocket, but he says, really, they virtually never need to be mentioned. What should be mentioned instead and is far more helpful is the moral foundation that is used to, un- to empower those laws. Common decency. So when someone asks you for something private, don't bring up HIPAA. Just say, that's private. If someone says, I can't do that for you, don't say, ADA accommodation. Say, hmm, that doesn't work for me. What else can we do? If someone doctors notes to you, he says, don't just go fetch your doctor's note for them. Be just as comfortable as saying, that doesn't work for me. What else can we do? In fact, he says, there are so many things that can be said that simply indicate what you need from a person and to do so with little need for conflict. For instance, the sentence, I am unable to wear a face mask safely, appears to be among the most effective of them. And by the way, that's not a lie. Very few people are truly able to wear a face mask safely. They cause psychological, sociological, biological harm. But he says, this is really an issue of being comfortable in yourself and being able to say, look, I'm a fully functioning human. I'm fully capable of telling others what I want. You don't need a law to do that. If you really feel the need for a law, sure, use that crutch. But he says you're kicking a can down the road. What kind of feelings of guilt, of inferiority, of worthlessness, or shame inhabit your internal terrain that you aren't able to say to someone else, Sir, I would like X. What can you do to get that for me? Alan Stevo says you can find a psychiatrist to help you address that internal shame, but that would bring us to a collection of wisdom that's really only been codified in the last century. 
and half through the work of professionals who largely follow in the footsteps of Freud. Some of that wisdom is specious at best. He says, I think you have a problem that long precedes the modern era and that Freud and his adherents have some trouble truly addressing. Pick up the Bible. Start at the beginning. Suspend your disbelief for a while. Find a preacher who isn't laden with religious shackles and guilt and use his services to get yourself out of whatever internal mess you happen to be into. Being able to feel forgiven and to forgive lifts such a burden from one's shoulders. You were meant to walk this earth blessed and prosperous, not cowering and begging. So if you need a law to justify your boundaries, something is amiss and needs prompt correcting. Isn't that kind of a gentle but thorough kick in the seat of the pants? His point here is that your humanness is far more legitimate than any law. Alan Stevo says, if you can't identify your boundaries, communicate your boundaries, and defend your boundaries without the need to justify it by saying, it's the law, you miss a far more important law. You are created in the likeness of God and have certain qualities that merit honoring. You're not legitimized because of some legislative body. You were born legitimate. Speak openly about your boundaries because it's legitimate and proper to have clear, solid, impervious boundaries. Not because someone in an office somewhere deigned to write some edict on the topic, or not because a group of someone's together decided to pass a law. Your individual boundaries are far more legitimate than any claimed boundary of any artificial collective. The former is true and legitimate, the latter is artificial and almost always illegitimate. And he reminds us this is a battle for your mind. He says, the battle we're in is not kinetic. It's very much a spiritual battle. And the terrain on which it is fought is very much in your head, on your face, and in your home. It's a war for your mind. Laws and police officers are not the most effective tools in this war. In fact, if anything, they tend to be distractions from the real battle. And they can even be methods of sabotaging that precious space in between your two ears. That can be true even when you are the one initiating use of those tools. So these tools can be used as a crutch, but it's far better to use common decency as your crutch, along with civil conversation and polite requests. And he says, watch out for your ego run amok. You don't get the same gratification as you might get from yelling at the top of your lungs with ego about how right you are and waving the legal document around. And he says, it really can feel very gratifying, I must admit. But you get a far better gratification, the one that comes by simply asking your ego to take a few minutes off and by you having a civil, human-to-human conversation in which you tell the person what you need and in which they are treated by you with such respect that they wouldn't feel right telling you no. Now, it doesn't always work, but it almost always works. And when it doesn't work, you still get to walk about your day with an inner peace and calm that the other method doesn't offer. What's so hard about just saying no to something you don't want to do? Two-year-olds know how to do it. In fact, with a very limited vocabulary, the two-year-old you knew how to very clearly communicate. No, that doesn't work for me. So he says, reconnect with two-year-old you. If two-year-old you could say, no, that doesn't work for me, what exactly is it that stops contemporary you from doing something like that? He goes, I've yet to hear a good answer to that question. Waving laws around can be very effective, but he says there doesn't need to be heated conflict. Look, you either have boundaries or you don't. You're either a person of values or you're a person of preference. 
He who always stands on his values is a person of values. He who is flexible with his values, well, that's a person of preference. So be the person of values. And of course, people want authority over, over you, but why do you want them to have authority over you? He says, if you can do it without resorting to the methods of the great state and instead use common decency and polite civil conversation with another human, how mighty you'll be able to grow in the face of every such person who claims authority over you. This is really some wise stuff. Yes, there is a link in the show notes at thebrianheightshow.com. These are the show notes for June 9th, 2021. Another fantastic essay from Alan Stevo. This is The Brian Hyde Show.